Okay, well, we're going to uh, continue in our study of Matthew 24. I do um, want to uh, give a bit of a, a recap, and to do that, I'm going to just take you to a passage in Matthew 15. You don't even have to really turn there, but I want to remind you of an account that Matthew records in Matthew 20, 20 uh, sorry, 15, verse, chapter 15, verses 21 to 28, where Jesus has gone to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he has been approached by a Canaanite woman, a, a Gentile. And she's desperate for Jesus to do something for her daughter, who is demon-possessed. And so, he's, so she's pleading with him, she's crying out to him, and there's just a shocking statement recorded by Matthew in terms of Jesus' response. It simply says in verse 23, but he answered her, not a word. You see that. It just doesn't match up with the Jesus that we know and love, right? He just ignored her. And she's pleading uh, for him to do something about the demon that possesses her daughter. And the disciples come up to Jesus and say, listen, send her away, for she cries out after us. And then Jesus says something amazing. He opens his mouth and he says this in verse 24. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You remember that. You've come across that passage, no doubt, and you've wondered, maybe a bit perplexed as to what Jesus is talking about here. It's very simple. What he's saying is Jesus first and foremost came for Israel. He came uh, to his people. Now, when we finish this account, we actually do find that out of the compassionate Christ, the Savior that we know, he did heal that uh, woman's daughter just with the word because of her pleading and because of her faith. That's, that's the Savior that we love. But his mission was to his people. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, prior to this, at verses 5 to 6, Matthew records this, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the twelve disciples. Jesus commands them to go, to, to send them out, but to not to go to Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Just go to the lost sheep. Go to Israel. Jesus was primarily sent to his people, the Jewish people. He came to be their deliverer, their redeemer, their Messiah, their king. But how do the people respond? What do we learn? Well, John 1, 11 tells us he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to them, but they didn't receive him. In Matthew 23, which we looked at briefly last week, coming into chapter 24, Jesus has given his final public sermon. He does not give another one from that point on. But chapters 21, 22, and 23, all of those, um, are a pronouncement of judgment upon Israel. And chapter 23 in particular, as we saw last week, is a stinging indictment against the the, the religious leaders. And the final judgment is pronounced to all of the house of Israel in verses 37 to 38. And just wanted to remind you of this. He said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. Desolate. It will be left abandoned to ruin. Judgment upon Israel, upon Jerusalem, upon the temple. All of that will be done away with. And then he says in verse 39, For I say to you, you shall not you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Very interesting, isn't it? On the one hand, he says, Your house is left to you desolate. I'm done with you. There's 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 no more ministry I'm gonna to give to you. And then he says, But you're gonna see me again. And you'll see me again when you recognize me as the Messiah, because that phrase is a messianic uh, title. We looked at that last week, and that, that was the phrase people were shouting at him at the triumphal entry, which they soon abandoned after that, didn't they? So you, you, you won't see me, but you will see me, right? You'll see me later uh, at when you recognize me as the Messiah. Now, the disciples, they had been listening to all of this, and they picked up on all these this, and, and it's filled them with excitement. Remember I said that last week? They're actually excited about these things. Now, why would they be excited about your house is left to you desolate? You know, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Why would he, why would they be excited? If you remember, I took some time to talk about Jewish eschatology, their view of the last times. In in their minds, they just understood this all to be coming together prophetically, that Jesus would bring judgment, that he would purge the city of Jerusalem and the temple but but that's all that's just all a prelude to the coming of the kingdom. See, they believed that the coming of the Messiah was going to be preceded by a time of great tribulation, and they had endured much of that tribulation under the oppression of other nations, like the Medo Persian Empire, the Greeks, the Romans. And so that has been their situation. And then in the midst of that turmoil, an Elijah-like forerunner would come. And John the Baptist had come, and many Jews were drawn to him. And after that forerunner would come the Messiah, and he would establish his kingdom. And here's Jesus on the on the scene. And what follows that would be the Messiah is going to set up a kingdom. The nations would gather, scattered around the world, would be gathered together back into Israel. And that would become the new center of the world. All the nations subjugated to the Lord, and it would initiate a new age of peace there. And they saw all that happening really at the same time. So as Jesus is talking about these things, they're excited because they had no sense of the first and second coming because the Old Testament prophets, they just didn't present it that way. They didn't know that there was going to be a gap between his first and second comings, which is the church age. Now, you might remember last week I, I drew just a couple things. I just drew the second coming and then we talked about what Jesus is, is speaking about. Well, I have no idea how far back I need to go and what you missed, so we're just going to keep on going. <laughs> um, hopefully, you were in Isaiah 61 and you were able to look at Isaiah 61 and see the prophecy of the, the Messiah there by, by Isaiah, that it's all, all one prophecy, that he sees the Messiah coming to declare liberty to the captives, um, to to heal the, the brokenhearted, but at the same time to declare the day of vengeance of our God, all as sort of one moment. So if you missed this, turn to Isaiah 61 so you can see this, but go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. All right, Luke chapter 4, in verse 17, I want you to see something here, so get there. Luke chapter 4. 
Jesus is in Nazareth. It's the Sabbath. He goes into the synagogue and he's handed uh, the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Look at what it says in verse 17. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now look what he says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book. Now, this won't have the same impact if you missed the, the, the Isaiah passage, so definitely go back and look. This is super important. Jesus closes the book of Isaiah immediately after he says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, when you go back to Isaiah 61, find that verse. It's verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus doesn't say that second half of that verse. He closes the book before it. You see that? It's, it's a hint to them. He closed the book because he's not there to declare the day of vengeance of our God. He is there to proclaim liberty to the captives, to heal the brokenhearted. He didn't finish the verse because he's not there to do that part of the prophecy just yet. That is future. The day of vengeance is coming, coming in judgment in the future. So the disciples don't see hints like that. They can't understand the mystery. They think Jesus is speaking about setting up the kingdom soon. And when I say soon, I mean, I think they think it's next week. They're just waiting. It could be any day now. In fact, Jesus had said something even more interesting in verse 2 of Matthew 24. <clears throat> Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. And again, that's, that's part of what the disciples understood would happen in the end times. So they think it's all part of his coming. But Jesus is pronouncing this judgment upon that generation. The destruction of Jerusalem was a future destruction, but not far off, 30 years or so in the future. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus destroyed it. So his prediction was a pronouncement of judgment uh, for, for them because they had rejected him as Messiah. And that's what prompts the question, though. That's what prompts the question the disciples uh, ask. And that's what we looked at last week in verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, a couple things here. Just remember, when they say, what will be the sign of your coming, coming doesn't have anything to do with second coming. Because they don't understand a second coming. Um, in fact, the word literally means to be around or to be present. So it has the idea of the fullness of his presence. They want to know, when is Jesus going to fully establish his presence as the Messiah at the end of the age? That's what they asked, right? So the whole sermon is meant to answer that question, to throw off any idea of it being soon. Okay, It's all talking about the future. This passage doesn't address the time between then and 70 AD, as some commentators will try to, to, to find. It, uh, uh, because the destruction of the temple happens and they kind of read into it. It's impossible with the things that Jesus is talking about. It doesn't describe the church age, this, this period of time either. Um, Jesus takes us way into the future, 
to here, to this period of time. That part I haven't filled out yet. It doesn't describe things that are prior to that. How do we know that, you're saying? I mean, I've heard people tell me it's here. I've heard people tell me it's between here and uh, sort of like uh, 70 AD, right? 70 AD with the, uh, I guess it's supposed to be AD 70, isn't it? With the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. I've heard people tell me it represents the church age and we've seen these things happen maybe in a spiritual sense. I took a long time last week to talk about how we should study the Bible, literally, historically, right? Those principles. When you take a literal historical approach, you just can't fit those things in. But in addition to that, I'm taking time today to give to you some indicators from Matthew 24, just launching into this, that that points us to the fact that this is all yet future, and even future beyond us and our current state today. As, 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 as difficult as that might be, I need you to understand that. So seven indications of the future. Seven indications of the future that we're going to look at. And here's the first indication. I think we have slides. You have the slide for that? First indication is birth pains. And it comes from verse 8. Birth pains. Uh, Let me just read. In verses 5 through 7, Jesus is describing sort of some of the signs of his coming. And we will go through them. But he talks about uh, many coming in his name. Wars and rumors of wars. He talks about nations against nation. Famines pestilences, earthquakes, all of those things. And then in verse 8, he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. Now, sorrows is a really poor translation if you have that version. New King James does use that. The word literally means, odin means birth pains. That's That's literally what it means. It is the labor pain associated with childbirth. Jesus goes through that whole list and he says, all of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Now, let me ask you, when do labor pains come? At conception? No, right? In the the middle of pregnancy? No. They come just before birth. They are a physical sign to the mother to go and get prepared. That the time has come for the baby to be born. Now, I, I know that labor is a painful thing, but aren't you kind of glad, ladies, that there is some kind of warning that the baby's going to come? I mean, just think about it. What if there was no thing as labor pain? The baby just pop out whenever. You're in line at the grocery store. You're driving your car, right? You're on a roller coaster at an amusement park. I mean, just think about these things. It'd be ridiculous. The labor pains, the pains associated with childbirth are signs that you need to get prepared, right? That's why you go to the classes and your husband has the bag packed and stuff so that when that happens, you're you're prepared. You know, hey, that means something's going to happen. I mean, this is just a natural fact of life. We understand that. Jesus uses a very easy illustration for us to understand. Those things are a sign that something else is coming. They occur not at the beginning, not even the middle, just prior to childbirth. They're not strung out all throughout the pregnancy. So these aren't strung out all throughout the church age. They occur with increasing frequency near the end until the baby's born. I want to show you something. Paul used the same expression uh, to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, 1 Thessalonians. It says this, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. 
For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. He says, I don't need to write to you to tell you these things. You already know that. You know when the Lord's going to come. He's going to come like a thief in the night. He goes on. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. You see that? He uses the labor pains there as well. Why does Paul not need to instruct them, educate them on Jesus' coming? Because Jesus has already done that. The Thessalonians have Matthew 24. That instruction's already been given. He says, you don't have any need from me uh, to tell you about the end. You, you know how it's supposed to come. It's going to come uh, like a thief in the night, which is suddenly, unexpectedly, uh, sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. That's suddenly, that's unexpectedly. Uh, the woman doesn't know when the labor pains are going to start. They come suddenly and unexpectedly. And that's how Jesus is using it here. As labor pains come, then they come more frequently and more frequently until a child is sent out of the body, right? So, too, all of these signs, deceivers, wars, famines, earthquakes, all those things, they'll come more and more frequently until there's an explosion of catastrophic events, which will signal the end. Birth pains come right before the end. Here's the end. Birth pains come right before that. They're not strung out all throughout history. So these are future events. That's one indication. The second indication that this is all future is verse 13. It tells us enduring to the end. Very, very interesting. Verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. The end of what? End of what? Well, end is mentioned in verse 6 as well. Look at it. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And then the end is also mentioned in verse 3, obviously, because the disciples asked him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So it's obviously that, the end of the age. That's the question Jesus is answering. So what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus uses that end throughout as he talks about it. So, think about this. The disciples whom Jesus is talking to did not live to the end of the age. They've died, right? So, this could not be applying to them. How about to us, to the church age enduring to the end? Can, can that happen? Well, if we have to endure to the end of the age, it's all got to start happening real soon, or some of us aren't going to make it, Right? depending how old you are. Or think about how many thousands of Christians have died during the church age. They didn't endure to the end. So, so are they not saved? I mean, what's happening here? What is Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus isn't referring to that either. If this is, this is talking about people enduring to the end of the age, then it has to be addressed to people who are alive at the end of the age. Right? It can't be to you and me if we're not at the end of the age. What's the point? It has to be addressed to people who are alive during that. People who go through those events. People who go through those birth pains. Who endure to the end. These troubles that Jesus is talking about are coming upon people who are alive at the end of the age. It's yet future. A third indication that this is yet future. Gospel is preached to all nations. Verse 14, 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. You see that? Uh, This has been a a long time, you know, discussion. (laughs) The gospel has to be preached to all the nations. Jesus can't come back because the gospel hasn't been preached to all uh, the nations. I've been to uh, Perspectives missions courses, and they teach this kind of thing that, hey, listen, if Jesus can't come back until the gospel is preached to all the nations, then listen, we can usher in that kingdom more quickly if we just have more missionaries, more you know, laborers out there to send to the harvest, and we can make sure the whole world is evangelized, and then the end can come. So it really relies upon us. And you got the charts and stuff. And listen, if that's really true, we could chart out the whole map, the whole world, and people have done that, and kind of like color in as we go. And once we got that last little tiny place, like, okay, we preached the gospel there, Jesus is coming, right? We could be ready. But listen, it wasn't true in the disciples' time. The gospel wasn't preached in all the places. It's not true in our time. The gospel hasn't been preached in many, many places today. So how will that happen? When will that take place? That's going to take place in the future. It actually happens in in the tribulation, and it's discussed in Revelation 14. We're not covering that today. You're going to have to hang on, at least till next week, all right? But it's an indication that it's not now, but it's yet future, because the gospel must be preached in all the nations, and then the end will come. Future. A fourth indication this is, this is future, this is quite fascinating, comes from verses 15 and 16. It's the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. Now listen, as we're going through these things, obviously, I, I will be going back through these verse by verse. I'm just highlighting these things to say Jesus is talking about future events. Okay? This is a fourth indication, and it's the abomination of Desolation. What is the abomination of desolation? Well, it's uh, look at verse 15. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Uh, it comes from Daniel, uh, chapter 9, verse 27. I want you to see this. It says this. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. That's the abomination of desolation. It comes from those two words. We'll look at that in detail next week. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, who is the he in that? He shall confirm a covenant. Well, the he is the Antichrist. And he comes in the middle of the tribulation uh, to set up the abomination of desolation. He desecrates the temple of the Jews, and he's going to do it until the consummation, until the end. That's what he's saying. And he says, and at a time that is determined by God to be done, which is poured out on the desolate. What he means is judgment. He's going to do that until judgment. In fact, a few verses prior to that, chapter 9, verse 24, it says this, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this uh, is, is far too much to unpack today, and I'll try to unpack it a little bit, uh, a little bit more next week. But it is an, a profound prophecy 
70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. That's to the Jews and to Jerusalem, right? And the temple for you. 70 weeks. It's a prophecy that it is 70 weeks time. And in, in prophetic language, it's 70 weeks of years. So it's actually seven year weeks times the 70. He's talking about 490 years. In 490 years, we're going to finish sin. We're going to make an end of that. There's going to be reconciliation for iniquity. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Vision prophecy will be sealed, right? And we'll anoint the most holy, right? That's Jesus is coming. So 490 years, that happens. You can calculate it out. But the prophecy goes on to tell us that 69 of those weeks, so 483 years, are going to be from the decree by our exerces to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple to the coming of the Messiah. That's 69 of your weeks, of your 70 weeks. So we know that, just from what Daniel tells us, that this period of time, somewhere in here, I'll do it this way. We have 69 weeks, 483 years. It leaves a seventh week, a one seven-year period. It's called Daniel's 70th week, right? Because he says, well, there's 70 weeks determined for you. Well, if you remember the verse I showed you right before this, that he, that he will come and he'll make a covenant with many for one week, it says. One week. He is going to come here during this period of time. This, uh, maybe it's easier than this period of time, right? This is the seven-year tribulation. This is why we call it that, seven-year um, tribulation. We'll just do this. Seven-year trib. And it is this period of time that is the 70th week of Daniel, the day of Jacob's distress or D Jacob's trouble. It is the, the final piece of the puzzle that Jesus is going to fulfill with his uh, people, and that's when this individual is going to come and this abomination of desolation is going to come because it says in the middle of that week, he'll bring an end to the sacrifice, which is right in the middle of it. What's half of seven? Well, that's three and one half years and three and one half years. He'll make a covenant from here to here with Israel. That'll all look good halfway through. He'll break that covenant. He'll set up an abomination of desolation, which we'll talk about next week. And that'll go on until the coming of Jesus. So the abomination of desolation is future. It's not even here now. It's future that Jesus is talking about. It comes right before the bringing in of everlasting righteousness and right before judgment. A fifth indication that this is all future is the great tribulation. It's in verse 21 and it's Jesus' own words. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. The events described here regarding the great tribulation, often we refer to the second three and a half years of the tribulation as the great tribulation, are the most intense and terrible uh, events the world has ever seen, ever. And none of them have happened yet. And Jesus is referring to another time that Daniel predicts. It's in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Michael shall stand up. That's Michael the archangel, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, over the Jewish people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. So this time is going to come. It's going to be 
such a terrible time, even, even up to that time, it's going to be the worst time. And at that time, your people will be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel chapter 12 tells us that this time right here is going to be a time of terrible trouble, the worst the world has ever seen, and particularly the Jewish people have ever seen ever. And if you think about that, I mean, think about the Holocaust. You think it's going to be worse than that? That's what Daniel says. It's followed immediately by a resurrection of life, some to life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. So this is yet future as well. A sixth indication, I'll do these last uh, really quickly here, uh, is in verses 29 to 30. Uh, You read these events. uh, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Um, none of that has happened. <laughs> Just basically want to say those, those are cosmic disturbances that have not happened and we cannot make allegorical you know, connections or spiritual connections. If we take the Bible literally, that's all future. A seventh indication that this is future, and this is the final one, is the parable of the fig tree. Parable of the fig tree is found in verses 32 to 35. It says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, this is a simple parable. I've heard people really convolute this, I think, beyond ways that we really need to. It's a very simple parable. He says this. When you see leaves on a fig tree, you know that summer's coming. And what happens in summer with your fig tree? It brings fruit. We're still waiting to see that happen on our fig tree. Hasn't happened. Got leaves. No fruit yet. But the fruit comes in the summer. And so in other words, the leaves are a sure sign that summer is coming. And then the fruit is coming, right? So he says... When you see all these things, well, what things? Everything he's been talking about in Matthew 24. When you see all these things, all the signs, uh, the great tribulation, when you see all these things, it's near. What's near? The end of the age. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What generation? I've heard people go crazy with this too. The fig tree is Israel and, you know, the leaves were them becoming a nation in 1948 and a generation is 70 years and so... You know, 2018, well, that came in and went. Uh, He is simply saying something he said earlier. The generation that is alive when those signs are happening, when they come, the one that sees those things taking place, sees the leaves of the fig tree to tell them that summer is coming, right? Those are the ones he's talking about. The signs are reserved for people who are going to be alive at the time of the end. Those who endure at the end. It's the same thinking there. So I think we can safely say that the entire Olivet Discourse is future. Now, let me just make a statement. I know that some of these things that are mentioned in here happen now. Earthquakes happen now. Famines happen now. Wars happen now. But nothing is going to be compared to the time of the birth pains when they come frequently and more rapidly 
prior to his coming. Now, we're going to see some of that as we go verse by verse and unpack this a bit. So beginning in verse 4, Jesus is going to answer the disciples two questions. Remember the two questions. Go back to Matthew 24. Tell us, verse 3, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? So when and what? Now he answers those two things, but he does it in reverse order. He's going to answer the what first. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He answers that in verses 4 all the way to 35. What will be the sign of your coming? Then he answers the when. When will these things be? And that's 36 to 51, the rest of the chapter. So we're looking at that question. What will be the sign of your coming? And that's the title today. These are the signs of Christ's coming. And Jesus begins describing those by giving us six birth pains. Here are six birth pains. And today we are only going to have time for one. But don't worry. Next week we'll get through a lot more. But here's verses 4 and 5. Let's look at it. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. The first birth pain that comes is deception. It is deception. And it will be widespread deception. Now, certainly you can look around the world today and you can see deception in the world. And, and certainly with everything that's going on with uh, the virus and all of these things, there is there are a lot of conspiracy theories and all those things about, you know, this is, uh, you know, global conspiracy and it's deception and we're being deceived and all those things. And whatever you have to say about that and however extreme you think this is, the deception that Jesus is talking about here is 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 beyond anything that we see now or we have seen. His warning is to those living during those days in the future that there's going to be deception on a scale never before seen. And I'm going to show you why. Yes, we have had false Christs come before, false, false messiahs. Uh, we, we've always had them uh, around. But this period of time that Jesus is speaking about, we were going to see a proliferation of false messiahs. When you look at the correlating accounts, so in Mark uh, 13, Luke 21, um, we get some more information. They draw from Matthew's Olivet Discourse, but Luke, uh, Luke tells us that these, these antichrists, basically these false Christs, will come saying, I'm he and the time is near. Um, they're talking about the end and they're going to point people to that. The end is coming. The destruction is coming. I'm the one that you need to follow. And in fact, Jesus talks a lot about the false prophets and the false messiahs that will come at this time. And look at verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Their deception will be very, very effective. They're going to deceive many people. Why will it be so effective during that time? Skip down to look at 23 and 24. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The deception of that time is going to be accompanied by signs, by miracles, by wonders. 
And, and you might look at this and go, well, what is, what is the situation here? Why is everyone even looking for Christ? We don't have that today. We don't have people in the streets saying, where is the Christ? Where is the Messiah, right? What Something has to be going on here. Yes, it is. The world is in absolute chaos during this time. Everyone is looking for a savior. They're looking for a deliverer. They're looking for leaders. In fact, verse 12 tells us lawlessness will abound. You think it's lawless today with the riots. Wait till what happens in the future. But why is everything so bad? Why is lawlessness abounding? Why is everyone looking for Christ's? In a phrase, the rapture of the church. Now, Jesus does not deal with the rapture of the church in Matthew 24 anywhere. Hear me when I say that. Matthew 24 has nowhere in it anything to do with the rapture of the church. You have to go to the epistles for that. And the reason is, well, the reason is why. I've taken a lot of time to make this point. Um, He's been just asked by his disciples when he is going to be coming fully to reign on earth, his millennial reign, right? At the end of the age. And that is the question that Jesus is answering. He is not going to sit these disciples who aren't going to be around for this down and try to talk about the invisible uh, rapture of the church. They're going to go, what's the church? They have no clue. The rapture and the church age are not in view in Matthew 24. So where does that come? There are different views, but being a Calvary chapel, we, we, we subscribe to the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. This is that period of time called the tribulation. We believe that the church will be raptured out of the world prior to that time. We'll, uh, we'll write rapture here. And this is not a rapture sermon. I'm not going to go and give a bunch of verses on that. You can go back to December 29th and listen to that one. Um, but this is just to, to say, why, why is everything such a mess at this time? The rapture of the church, that's why. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, I have the verse for you, tells us this. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, that's a very interesting verse here. There's a mystery of lawlessness that's already at work. It's at work today. We see lawlessness. But we're talking about a a lawlessness that is different because at this point, something is restraining it, right? We, We see rights and stuff, but there's still a sense of law and order even existing today, because there still is a power that restrains it. And ultimately, it's the power of the Holy Spirit restraining the forces of evil to a point. I mean, if the Holy Spirit just removes that restraint any bit, then it's hell on earth. Well, the rapture of the church, and many people believe this, because believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When the church is taken, the Holy Spirit is removed. I I, I don't think I go that far. I think it all happens at the same time. Simply because um, the God is beyond just the church. Um, the Holy Spirit is beyond just the, the believers. I think he just removes his power to restrain. But the church is gone. So I think it's a twofold uh, thing. The restraining power of the Holy Spirit is removed. He who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So the Holy Spirit doesn't disappear. God is not God from the earth. He is just 
removing that restraint uh, for this period of time. And so the Holy Spirit's restraint has been removed. The spiritual power and influence of the church has been removed. And all hell does break loose on earth. And so you have false prophets and false Christ seeking to take advantage of the situation at that time. You could just think about it. That's not hard to imagine. The entire church is gone. All kinds of people are going to come and say, oh, I knew it's going to happen. I'm, I'm really, those people got judged. I'm really the Christ you were looking for. It's going to happen. It's going to be a, a massive time of deception. And people at this time can't go to the church for answers, right? They're not going to find a Bible-believing pastor to go for answers, right? Um, and so they're going to turn to these false prophets. They're going to turn to false messiahs. Paul talked about this to Timothy. He wrote a warning to him about the last days, uh, perilous times will come. You remember that? And then he, he lists a description of the perilous times. Men will be lovers of themselves and boastful and proud and um, without self-control. And he has this whole long uh, list. And it ends with, they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, denying um, or having a form of godliness, but denying its power, right? They look godly, but they deny its actual power. And then he ends that whole section with this verse, 2 Timothy 3, 13. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's that period of time. The perilous times that will come is a time of deception, unparalleled deception. And this proliferation of false Christs are going to climax with the arrival of who? The ultimate false Christ. Who's that? The Antichrist. In, in fact, the rapture of the church and the Holy Spirit's removal of his restraining power are what usher in the coming of the Antichrist. Now, I just read to you that passage from 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to have you turn there. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You go to right-hand turn in your Bibles, past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you come to the Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2. We just looked at verse 7, but as you're turning there, I want to tell you that the Bible has a lot of information about this person, this, this Antichrist. The, the, the book of Daniel calls him the little horn or the king with fierce or wicked features. Uh, John, uh, in Revelation, calls him the beast. And Paul, uh, here, calls him the man of sin, uh, the son of perdition, or the lawless one. So you have Daniel and John and Paul and Jesus all talking about the Antichrist. Let's see how these all match up. Look at verses 1 to 3 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one, what's the word? Deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. See, someone had told some of these Thessalonians that the day of the Lord had come and they thought they had missed it. He says, don't let anyone deceive you. That day doesn't come unless there's a falling away and the man of sin is revealed. Here, right? Jesus doesn't come till here. So that, that couldn't have happened because the man of sin hasn't been revealed. The Antichrist hasn't been revealed, hasn't been revealed to us either. Um, he, he is yet uh, future here. So, so here you have this description of 
uh, just an introduction to saying he's going to come. But then look in verses uh, 8 to 10. And when the lawless one, so there's another word for the Antichrist, and when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Do you notice that? He comes with unrighteous deception. He comes according to the working of Satan. This is a uh, satanically powered individual with an unparalleled ability to deceive people. And he has satanic powers behind him. That is a unique individual. He comes as the lawless one, according to Paul. I'm going to take you to Daniel to see how Daniel describes him in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Verse, beginning in verse 23. Let's see how he's described here. Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. It says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. So here's the king, he has fierce or wicked features, and he understands sinister schemes. How? He communes with demons. He's satanically powered. Look at verse 24. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. You see, that's by the power of Satan. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Remember that second three and a half years? That's when he's after the Jewish people. Verse 25. Through his cunning... He shall cause, there it is again, deceit to prosper under his rule. That is the Antichrist. In fact, he's going to be such an effective deceiver. He is going to convince Israel to make a covenant uh, with him. They will actually believe him to be their Messiah, to be their deliverer. That is uh, he who comes and makes a covenant for one week, right? Here's here's the, 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 the last week, the last seven years, right? He comes and makes a covenant right here in this period of time. And so the Jews think that's all all great. It's halfway through when he reveals himself to be this monster. Um, He does the abomination of desolation, which we'll talk about next week. And um, and then he demands to be worshipped as God. And uh, that's what happens. And, And Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, talks about that. Look at it. Daniel 11, 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will... He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. His deception is such that he convinces the world to worship him as God. That is not happening now, right? Uh, Certainly people revere certain people, but there's not one individual who is being who has such deceptive power to convince the whole world to worship him as God. That is yet future. That is a deception that I can hardly even imagine. Yet, it is what will take place. In fact, John talks about it in Revelation. Let's turn there. Revelation 13, this will be the last place we go to, to see how John describes this Antichrist, this ultimate deceiver, the ultimate false Christ. Revelation 13 speaks about 
the coming of a beast out of the sea, as if the sea of humanity, really. Um, and this, this beast is, is uh, the, the Antichrist. And we just can't go into all the details of this today. But if you look at verse 4, it says this. So they worshipped the dragon, which is the devil, who gave authority to the beast. So there it is again. There's the power behind the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Hey, there it is again. What's 42 months? Three and a half years. So he's given these three and a half years, which is also 42 months. 42 months to be worshipped as God. That's the abomination of desolation. Again, we'll look at it next week. But he's given those same 42 months. It's confirmed here in Revelation as well. To be worshipped. To be worshipped. That's incredible that this guy will be uh, worshipped. He's going to blaspheme God. He's going to demand that worship. Now, how does he do that? Well, he's aided by another beast called the false prophet. If you look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. There's a reference to the demonic power behind him. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The, the beast will, will appear to be assassinated and have a miraculous resurrection. So he's as, as definitely an antichrist, right? He's trying to even duplicate uh, the resurrection. So this, this false prophet will actually encourage people to worship uh, the beast. And how does he do that? Look at verses 13 and 14. He performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. The whole world is deceived by this individual. You have to look at this. How can the whole world fall into this kind of deception? It's the power behind that. In fact, chapter 12, verse 9 shows us who that is. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Do you see that? He's the power behind the beast. He's the voice behind the false prophet. So listen, the time that Jesus is talking about here, which is the point I'm trying to make, is a time of deception that is absolutely unparalleled. We are not in that time. Certainly, there's deceptive things happening around us. I I have no doubt about that, but that's not this. That's not what he's talking about here. False Christs, false messiahs deceiving uh, the world, culminating in the Antichrist who will deceive the whole world. So it is a time of deception that begins with the tribulation, culminates uh, halfway through that with the Antichrist declaring worship from the whole world. That's why Jesus says, take heed, right? Open your eyes, he says. So while the church is gone during that time, uh, the warning is still real and there for us and for all, isn't it? I mean, I I, I take uh, heart and comfort in the fact that that we're taken away uh, prior to that time, but we still need to keep our eyes open we, because many false Christs uh, have come, 
many false religious leaders have come and will come, and they will deceive many. Deception is is real. That that happens. But it's not the deception that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. It will, we will never have seen anything like it. So how do we take this, um, just looking at this first birth pain and kind of walking away today? Uh, first, I would say, you don't need to fear that day. Um, secondly, I would say, we should rejoice that Jesus is coming. He is giving us these signs to say, listen, you start seeing those things happening like, you, you know what's happening. I, I am going to come. Like, like the labor pains, the birth pains. When that starts coming, I'm sure women aren't looking forward to the pain part, but they do know, right, after the nine months of waiting, that means my baby is coming. So they're going to endure the pain for the, the child. So I, I, I believe that the church is gone for that time. And that is Daniel's 70th week where he is going to, uh, God is going to deal once again with Israel. We pointed out last week that they're suddenly on the scene and they are sealed, right, from all the wrath that has taken place, but they're on the earth. But we can rejoice that Jesus is going to come, that he is going to judge sinners, that he's going to remain faithful to his word. Aren't you glad about that? I mean, these aren't things that we should read and get scared about or upset about. It just shows us that he is, he is coming and he's even given us sort of a, a roadmap. These are, what, these are the things that are going to be happening down the road there. And I honestly believe these are great things to show to your unbelieving friends to say, this is the world that will be upon, you know, this will be the world you'll be living in um, if, if you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The great news is too, is that there's even hope during the tribulation, we, we see that in the book of Revelation as you're going through. God is still merciful even during that time as his wrath is being poured out to grant people uh, forgiveness of sins. People will repent. The nation of Israel will be a strong evangelistic uh, a tribe of people evangelizing the world and believers uh, will come to faith. But like Jesus said, they're going to have to endure to the end of that time. And that is going to be a difficult, difficult time. But we, uh, in the church of Jesus Christ, we can just be thankful for this. Jesus, he's coming again. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to do what good judges do. He's going to judge sin. He's going to reward the faithful, and we will live with him forever. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word, and Lord, for the opportunity to just begin to study this amazing passage. Your words about the signs of the, the end of the age, when everything will culminate with you reigning here on earth, God. Oh, we just look forward to that day. And Lord, we do pray for people who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Lord, that they would turn to you. They would recognize the awesome power and might of not of the Antichrist and of these these terrible things that are happening, but of, of the holy God who rules and reigns over everything. Oh God, we just praise you for your faithfulness to us. Your promises are, are true, Lord. You, you give us truth here that we can rest upon and stand firm upon that you are coming again to rule and to reign. Oh God, what a, what a day that will be. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for this time. May your saints be encouraged and edified by this today, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.